Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man that would like to remind us all to beware of what's in the sewers of Derry, Maine. Here is the captain. Yeah, warning. It's poop. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Montucky cold snacks by the hardworking women and men over at Contract Brewery. Be sure to pick up a couple of these blue cans with the powerful white horse on it. Why? Because it's 16 ounces of refreshment. Montucky cold snacks is a lager. What kind of lager you ask? American, of course. Garage grade three and a half bottle caps out of five. And a big cheers goes out to our good friends that helped us out with this week's shows. First up. Cheers to Sherry G. in Woodbine, Maryland. And a big We Like Your Jib to Valerie in Waterford, Ireland. And here's a cheers to Kelly in Mishawaka, Indiana. Mishawaka. And a big shout out to Christine in Vista, California. Next up, we have a shout to Sean and Ian from the Big White Truck in Scotland. And last but certainly not least, we have Chan Wing Chi in Kowloon, Hong Kong. Cheers to everyone that helped us out with this week's beer fun. Yeah, B-W-E-R-R-U-N, beer run. And if you'd like to support the show and get something in return, check out our store page. Because you could ban the van. You could ban the creepy camper. You could ban the tan sedan. Check all those out at truecrimegarage.com and click on the store page. And that's enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
The following is taken from a 2006 article from the Independent Record. Her girl is never far from Sidney Bacon's thoughts. The girl lives in a Tupperware box. Right now, the box is in Hayden Lake, Idaho, with a University of Montana student who is studying her. But she'll soon be returned to Missoula for what Bacon and others hope will be the next step in figuring out who she is. Sidney Bacon, who has a master's degree in forensic anthropology from the University of Montana, knows the girl better than almost anyone. She detailed everything about her for her master's thesis. But someone, somewhere, knows her better. Someone knows the name that goes with the bones in the box. It's very upsetting to me that she is not on a missing persons report somewhere, Bacon said. For now, the girl is known by other names. Case number 850-9102. Christy Crystal Creek. For more than 20 years, Christy Crystal Creek was essentially the soul sister of another young woman, known only as Debbie Deer Creek. Debbie's nude body was found in the Deer Creek drainage on Christmas Eve, 1984. Christy's remains were found by a bear hunter nine months later, scattered across a hillside in Crystal Creek, one drainage over from Deer Creek. Missoula County Sheriff's Captain Greg Hintz has known Christy Crystal Creek from the start, known about the two bullets in her skull, known about the possible connection to a suspect. Captain Hintz is contacted on a regular basis by people who think Christy might be this woman or that. But so far, he's never made the match. But with the work being done in North Texas, he is once again hopeful that Christy's identity might be closer to discovery. The technology is out there, Hintz said. All we have to do now is a little more work. Primarily, that work consists of sending one of Christy's bones to North Texas. Then, it's a matter of crossing our fingers. There's no getting around it. We need some luck, Hintz said. The problem, of course, is that the North Texas lab may produce a perfectly good DNA sample and have nothing to match it to. If some law enforcement agency somewhere doesn't have evidence on the woman or her family, a match is unlikely. And one of the key methods of identifying remains has already been tried and failed with Christy. She had very distinctive dentistry work done, Bacon said. It's unique work and extreme work. Christy had excellent and extensive dental care until maybe a year before her death. She had fillings in almost every tooth and had two root canals, including one in a relatively rare location. And then it all just stopped. About a year before she died, Bacon said. Someone stopped taking care of her or she stopped taking care of herself. That sort of dentistry is often enough to identify an unknown body if someone, usually a family member, has given the dental records to law enforcement so that they can be entered into the FBI's computerized National Crime Information Center. But there's never been a match. 
That suggests that Christie might not be listed anywhere as a missing person. But it's also at least remotely possible the dental records weren't available. Christie was petite, maybe five foot tall, 18 to 21 years old. She weighed maybe 100 pounds. Her remains suggest the possibility of both Caucasian and Asian heritage. And she was most likely right-handed. She smoked, and Bacon speculates, may have used drugs in the last years of her life. I don't think that she was from around here, based on the way Missoula reacts to somebody going missing, she said. Bacon has long felt Christy may be from the East Coast, a runaway, most likely, but that's just a hunch. I want to help in any way I can. I want her to be able to go home to a family, Bacon said. It's now October of 2020, and Christy Crystal Creek's real identity is still unknown. Christy Crystal Creek has been added to the NamUs database the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, better known as VICAP. At the Doe Network, she is simply known as 3UFMT, unidentified female. Her remains were discovered on September 9, 1985, recovered in a wooded area in Missoula County, Montana. No clothing, jewelry, or other personal effects were located. The victim's estimated date of death was approximately one year prior. Dental x-rays and DNA are available for comparison. To provide or request additional information, please contact the Missoula County Sheriff's Office at 406-258-3348 or the FBI Violent Criminal Apprehension Program at 800-634-4097. Christy Crystal Creek, is only one of the victims that we will be discussing this week. This is True Crime Garage. Montana or Big Sky Country, as I like to say, is the fourth largest state by area in this greatest of countries, the U.S. and A. We've done over 400 episodes, and we've only taken this flying garage ship to Montana one time before, and that was in July of this year for our Serial Confessor episodes. Now, I have only seen pictures But this looks like an absolutely stunning place to live. I'm talking about Missoula, Montana, with beautiful landscapes and earth as far as the eye can see. You got mountains and, of course, the big, big sky. Well, here we are again. But this time we are not in Poplar, Montana, like the Confessor shows. This time we are in Missoula, the hub of the Five Valleys. And in relation to Poplar, the other small towns in Montana, Missoula is the big city. Today, we have over 75,000 people living in Missoula. Our story starts back in the mid-70s, and since then, the population has more than doubled. So let's go back to 1974, Missoula, Montana, to a city of about 30,000 people. On Thursday, April 11th, 1974, 
The Pounds family got up and started their day as usual. This is a family of five, a very religious family, living in East Missoula. At this time, there were only four of the five family members living in the home. We have husband and wife, which is Harvey and Donna Pounds, who have been married for quite a while by this time. Their son, Kenny, was out of the house. He is off serving this country in the armed forces. Their oldest daughter, Karen, she too is grown, but still living at home. And their youngest is Kathy, who is only 12 years old. Harvey works at a local clothing store and does quite a bit of work for the church that his family attends. Donna works part-time at a nearby Christian bookstore. On this Thursday, Harvey and daughter Karen will be going off to work, and Kathy, she'll be going off to school. Donna, she has the day off, but on this morning, she's going to go off with a friend. And at the Pounds home, this morning really is nothing but routine. Everyone left the house, including Donna, who again has the day off, but she's picked up by a friend. Donna would ride along with her friend who made her Avon deliveries. That's how the captain spends a lot of his free time as well. Donna's friend returned and dropped her back off at the Pounds home. This is sometime after 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Later that afternoon, Kathy, the little girl, 12 years old, is the first one of the three to return to the home. She and a friend from school went to the Pounds house. They're doing typical after-school stuff, enjoying some snacks, watching a little television. A little less than two hours later, the father, husband, Harvey, returns home from his day job. When he arrived, he briefly spoke with Kathy and her friend, and he inquired about the whereabouts of his wife. Harvey went upstairs to look for her. There he found several cut lengths of rope. This is very unusual in itself, but even more so because one, the family did not have any rope anywhere inside the home, and two, the different locations of these pieces of rope. There were pieces tied to the bedpost in one of the bedrooms, a cut piece of rope dangling from the doorknob in the bathroom, and some rope tied to the hoses attached to the family's washing machine. But despite these strange discoveries, his wife was nowhere to be found. Harvey decided to check the basement, and there, at the bottom of the stairs, lying face down, but up against the wall, was the lifeless body of his wife. Harvey knew she was dead and was the victim of an attack that took place inside his home. Yeah, and of course he's going to tell his children to get out of the house, and they probably went to a neighbor's house, but you definitely want to protect them from seeing their mother like that. Yeah, he's going to call the police and call for help. The police arrive on the scene, and we can go through some of the evidence here, Cappy. The police arrived on the scene. This, What they're looking for is how this whole thing went down, of course. And along with the rope evidence, they're able to determine the following fairly quickly. That the killing took place sometime between 1 p.m. when Donna's friend dropped her off at the house. And what they're a little murky on is did this murder occur before Kathy and her friend arrived at the house, which seems the most likely, or 
when Harvey arrived home, or did it occur shortly after he arrived home? They're a little suspicious, of course. Well, it seems like the perpetrator would have had to spend a lot of time in the house, so possibly they would have left DNA or fingerprints. So there's no sign of a break-in. There was little sign of, of any actual struggle as well. This is concerning for police. The cause of death is five twenty-two caliber bullets fired into the back of Donna's head. There was evidence at the scene that suggests that the killer, as you said, spent a considerable amount of time in the home. This could be a couple of hours. We talk about the cut lengths of rope that are found in several different locations of the home. Right. Now, two very important key elements to this murder, the weapon was found at the scene. Now, this is not terribly uncommon, but more times than not, when a gun is used in the commission of a homicide, it is removed from the scene. The killer takes it with them and disposes of the gun elsewhere or keeps it sometimes for the purpose of committing future crimes. Yeah, why do you think that is? Well, in this case, the twenty-two caliber death instrument was not only left at the scene, but was found pinned between the legs of the victim. And even more curious, the gun belonged to Harvey Pounds, the husband. Okay, so the perpetrator comes in, brings his own rope, probably brings his own knife, does brings other things, but uses the homeowner's gun. Correct. That's the way that it looks. That's the way that it sounds with their discussion going on with Harvey at the time. Now, mind you, Harvey's being pretty forthcoming. That's my gun, number right. one. But he's the only one that can tell you if that rope came from the house or not. And right. he's saying that we didn't have any rope in the house. That is not our rope. Now, I read somewhere that this stuff was the holdback information, meaning that how many times she was shot and where they found the gun and who the gun actually belonged to. Right. I read several places that said that that is the, the holdback information. Now I'm not calling bullshit on that, but if that was the holdback information, they managed to hold it back all of two days because all three of those items were in the newspaper two days after the murder. Right. A couple of items that were, in fact, held back was that Donna's clothing was found in the upstairs master bedroom. Also found upstairs were some bullets. This means that shots were fired in the upstairs of the house, not just the downstairs in the basement, where we have our victim shot five times. Right, but do we know if she was sexually assaulted? It's believed that she was. But was that when she was alive, or is that post-mortem? There is every indication that the sexual assault took place upstairs in the bedroom where we found the rope. Okay. And they held that back at the time. For two I, days? <laughs> well, they they held that back for quite some time, actually, right. along with the, the stuff that I just went through. But the idea that this initial stuff was going to be held back seems like a big deal, I think the problem is because the murder weapon belonged to Harvey Pounds, it's tough to hold that back. Right. Because now you have a concern that he might be your suspect. Right. And if you're walking into this case as an investigator, you're going, okay, who's the most likely suspect? Bing, 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 bing. The husband, all bing, 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 bing. It's his gun. 
And then you start wondering, did they get into an argument? And then did he stage this whole scene to make it look like something it wasn't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, immediately Harvey was a suspect. This, of course, makes a lot of sense. He's the husband. You know, we've all seen the shirts that say the husband did it. Mm-hmm. TrueCrimeGarage.com. The we murder. Don't, we don't sell. We don't have those anymore. anymore. The murder weapon belonged to him, as we said, and he found the body. Right now, everyone knows that the husband or the spouse is not only often an early suspect, but if you watch three episodes of Dateline, on two of them, the spouse turns out to be the murderer. Right. Then compound this with it is his gun, and he found the victim. It's also not terribly uncommon for the person who quote found the victim to actually be the one who committed the murder. Right. And of course you have to factor in that there is no sign of forced entry. So either Mrs. Pounds let the killer into the home or the killer somehow had access to the home. I just want to stop on that for a second because right now you say the population is 75,000 today. Yes. Right. So back then 30,000 and right. So not a lot of people, I guarantee you, a lot of people were not locking every door. But there are a couple problems with the theory that Harvey killed his wife. First, the police had two other leads on the case that needed to be investigated. Next, Mrs. Pounds was alive and well when Harvey, Karen, and Kathy left for the day. She's alive and well when her friend drops her off at 1 p.m. Kathy and her friend did not see nor encounter anyone else inside the home until her father returned over an hour after the two kids arrived. So if we are to believe our witnesses, Kathy and her friend, then Mrs. Donna Pounds was dead before Harvey even returned from work. Now going against Harvey is someone in the neighborhood who says that they think that they saw Harvey's vehicle at the Pound's house at some point during the day, but couldn't be sure. Right. (laughs) Look, I'm all for see something, say something, but you're running a risk here of, of locking this man up for the rest of his life by going, ah, I think I saw him, his vehicle at their house sometime during the work day. Well, we have five shots. So do we have anybody that's, uh, ear witness? No, we have no ear witnesses in the case, and that's what's weird because mm. we know that the five shots that that killed this poor woman took place in the basement of the home. Okay, so that's somewhat you can explain that away. Maybe that muffles the sound a little bit, but there's evidence that shots were fired at in the upstairs of the home as well. Okay, but again, maybe maybe everybody's just gone. Maybe everybody else is just at work or at school during the time that this murder took place. The problem with the idea of this neighbor saying, I might have seen Harvey's vehicle at the Pounds house during the daytime, we have several people who say and confirm that Harvey was at work that day for the entirety of the workday. Right. So this, I might have seen his vehicle, doesn't seem like such a, such a it's definitely not a concrete thing, but it doesn't even seem like a, a good possibility at this point. Okay, so what are the other two leads in this case? Mm -hmm. The first comes from the statement of another potential witness. This is a neighbor that said that sometime during the day they saw a young man in the Pound's backyard. 
he described the young man as someone who lived down the street. You know, it looks like this kid that lives down the street, a white guy, young, maybe roughly 20 years of age. So police went to where it was thought that this young man lived and they spoke with a guy named Wayne Nance. Mm-hmm. He's 18 at the time. Wayne fit the description and not only did he live in the neighborhood and he's lived there for several years, he lives there with his father and brother. Um, they got a fairly big family, I believe mother, father, and four kids, including Wayne. He was friends with the pound's son, Kenny. Remember Kenny is off at the army at this time, right? So he knows the Pounds family, not just by living in the neighborhood. He was good friends with this kid at one point in their lives. Wayne had been inside the Pounds home on several occasions. Police questioned the young man who said he had been home for the entirety of the day nursing a cold. He says, I've mostly been sleeping and watching TV. So he doesn't really have much of an alibi. He's supposed to be in school that day. Right. Police strongly question Wayne's lack of a real alibi, and they decided to keep him on their very short list of suspects. But other than that, they did not have much to go on. Plus, they had that other lead. Yeah, this kid is skipping school, drinking back the old Robitussin, jerking off to the prices, right? This other lead they found is quite suspicious. A young man, 19 years of age, his name Clyde Wickstrom, was found on Interstate 90, about 12 miles outside of town. When he's found, he's dying from a self-inflicted gun shot to the head. Oh. Clyde was rushed to the hospital where he soon died. Police wondered, and publicly they wondered and said this to the papers, could it be that Clyde was the young man spotted in the backyard of the Pound's home? Now, did did he have a gun on him at the time? Yes, he because, did. Okay, so that, to me, kind of pushes him away because why would he use why would he use the homeowner's gun when he had a gun with him? That's a good question. You know, they, they asked the papers, they were asking and wondering, did he attack and kill Mrs. Pounds? And then due to the guilt, or fear of getting caught, or both, that he decided to take his own life. That's the thing, though. The percentage of these killers that are actually guilty or feel anything is pretty small. It it can be. I mean, everybody has a different reaction to, to their actions. And maybe the person... Look, I don't want to go down that road because it's a long one. And it's going to lead us nowhere. Because as you pointed out... Clyde decided to take his own life. He used his own gun. Why would he choose to use the pounds 22 found inside the home? And if Clyde knew the gun used in the murder could not be tied to him, well, then you start to wonder what's my chances of getting caught. Right. But so if we have these two leads, it's pretty simple. Wayne has been in their house. So if his fingerprints are in the house, it's kind of hard to say when they got there. This guy, Clyde, he has no connection to the family, so if his fingerprints Correct. are anywhere in the house, then he's guilty. Yeah, the theory quickly unraveled in just a little over 24 hours after the murder of Mrs. Donna Pounds. The Missoula County Sheriff's Office announced that any possible connection between the murder of Mrs. Pounds, mother of three, and the death of 19-year-old Clyde Wickstrom had been ruled out. 
Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. 
With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code TrueCrimeGarage50 at FactorMeals.com slash TrueCrimeGarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we're back. Cheers, mates. He's back. I'm back. He's back. Tall cans in the air, everybody. Mm-hmm. Robitussin in the air. <laughs> Within days, the sheriff's department announced another possibility, that there could be a connection between Mrs. Pound's murder and the slaying of a Billings, Montana couple that was murdered in their home a little more than six months before Mrs. Pounds was murdered. Law enforcement from both cities announced that they would be working together to see if there was, in fact, a connection between what the sheriff was calling two bizarre sets of crimes. Right, but this makes the whole community go on high alert. Yeah, yeah. And we should point out that the cities, although in the same state, you know, Montana is a big state, and the two cities of Missoula and Billings are about a five-hour drive from one another. So in the same state, but not really close at all. Okay, so let's go through the double slayings in Billings, Montana. This is a young married couple, and this is Mr. and Mrs. Clifford and Linda Bernhardt. They were found dead inside their home by Linda's mother. She was unable to reach her daughter and son-in-law by phone for a couple of days and decided to go to the home to investigate and found both of them dead in an obvious double homicide. The couple were both 24 years of age and had been married for four years, and they recently moved into this home. I think it might even have been a new build. Clifford was an army sergeant, and Linda worked at the grocery store. Clifford was found lying face down in a pool of blood. Linda was found in a bedroom, sexually assaulted and strangled. There was no sign of forced entry into the home. There was evidence that both victims at one time during the attack were tied at the wrist and ankles, but detectives did not locate the bindings at the scene, so meaning the killer took them with him. Also taken from the scene were several of Linda's personal items. This included a suitcase and some of her clothing. But there were some even more bizarre things about this crime scene. One, it appeared that the couple was getting 
ready to sit down for their evening dinner when something terrible happened, meaning they were attacked just before supper time. Dinner was prepared and set out on the counter as if it was about to be served. Even more strange, the table was set, but not for two people. The table was set for three people. It was looking like the Bernhardt's dinner guest either never arrived or killed them both. He didn't like what they were serving. Right. Another odd behavior of the killer. Would you like tuna salad? He turned the heat way down in the home and opened up several of the windows. In the couple of days that it took for the bodies to be found, the low temperature was six degrees during those days. Now, if any connection was made between these two horrific crimes at that time, it's really unknown and probably not likely, but it was never really mentioned again. They said two agencies are going to work together on this, and then it kind of disappears from the news. Did we have any uh, tampering with the thermostat? At the Pounds home? Right. No, we did not. So, of course, this is something we have seen in many other cases where law enforcement will say they're looking for a connection either between two somewhat similar crimes or maybe a location. You know, we've we've covered cases where they start talking about pig farms, church, gun stores, state park, uh, even stating that they are looking for a connection to a known offender. Someone recently picked up for something completely else. But after a couple of days it just fades from the news. They don't ever really announce, oh, we were looking at this guy and we didn't find anything. It just kind of goes away. And we don't hear much about it again. What we do hear about in the Donna Pounds case is a surgical glove. The sheriff's department, of course, canvassed the area immediately, going door to door asking questions. That's how they got the lead on the Wayne Nance, the witness who said they saw a young man in the Pounds backyard. And that was what led them to question him. As said, Nance was a senior in high school, and some of the officers thought this type of horrible, heinous act could not have been perpetrated by some kid from the local high school. This surgical glove, however, was quite important. And of course, they thought so, and it was not ever hold back information. The the authorities found the glove just outside of the Pounds neighborhood. It was a single latex or what some would call a rubber surgical glove. It looked like someone had just tossed it on the ground. Isn't it amazing how many cases are similar? Like when you think of the actions that probably took place in the Pound's home, the instruments that were brought, the way she was found, the way that she was bound, that really reminds me a lot of like BTK. Mm -hmm. But then you have this glove that's found out in the yard. Reminds me a lot of the Tara Grinstead case. Well, you see what type of people litter? What type of losers who litter? If you litter, you're obviously a psychopath. Um, That's today's lesson, kids. Yeah. So this glove is important because they believe there was blood on it. So they sent it to the FBI crime labs for analysis, thought to be the best at the time. They are hoping for two results. 
one, the very unlikely chance that the glove contained both the killer's blood and the victim's or fingerprints from the person who took the glove off. At this time, of course, Captain, they would just be simply looking for blood type that could directly connect the killer to the victim or at the very least match the victim's blood so they know that the glove was used in the commission of the crime. Right. But, of course, the test would take time, and regardless of what the results came back with, law enforcement wanted to find the match to this glove, right? Another single glove in someone's possession or even a box of gloves that match this glove. So the sheriff's office asked everyone in the area for their help. They were very public about this surgical glove finding. They want to know, has anyone seen gloves like this in someone's possession? Or do they know anyone that uses these types of gloves? More importantly, if people could go outside and check their yards to see if the second glove was discarded elsewhere or maybe even the gloves were tossed together and a dog or something made off with one of them. We've covered true crime stories where dogs show up running back to their owners with bones or body parts. Right. So the the moving of a glove does not seem strange at all. Now, like with most towns, Captain, there are going to be some local rumors, and some of them make their way to the police or even the newspapers, and some of them don't. And just like this case, the rumors from the 70s and 80s when there is an unsolved, mur- when there is an unsolved murder are always very interesting. We are coming up on Halloween the old trick-or-treat time, and we've covered plenty of cases where they cancel beggar's night because of local rumors, because of an unsolved murder and local rumors. Right. So what were some of the local rumors here in Missoula at the time? I'm going to warn you, I'm not going to go through all of them because there were quite a bit. There was a, a bunch of stuff swirling around, and we would later learn that the majority of them don't carry much weight. They're just not true. But the more interesting ones that swirled around was the idea of a cult or witchcraft being involved in the Donna Pounds murder. One rumor tied directly to the murder of Donna is that an individual involved in the occult or Satanist was the killer. The rumor was that either a note or a letter of some type was found near the Donna Pounds crime scene that described the, quote, ritual that was that this individual needed to kill three people to give themselves to Satan. All right, the need to kill three people. First, according to this rumor, they needed to kill or sacrifice a virgin then kill or sacrifice someone who is a faithful Christian. And then the third murder would be that of a betrayer. If this is true, then Donna Pounds, the wife of Harvey, who spends most of his time working for the church, she must be the faithful Christian follower. Okay, so that means that someone, the virgin, has already been murdered. And then Donna Pounds was killed, and someone else, a third victim, still needs to to die or this occultist or Satanist uh, for them to achieve their goal. So who was the virgin? Well, sadly there was a local case to connect that theory to. 
And that was the very sad case that started just two months earlier with the abduction of a little girl. On Tuesday, February 5th, 1974, a youngster described as precocious and friendly, this is little five-year-old Siobhan McGinnis. She vanished around 7 p.m. on that night in early February. She was last seen by her neighborhood friend at approximately 7 p.m. Siobhan was at her friend's house. The friend lives in the same neighborhood. Around 6.30 p.m., Siobhan's mother, Bonnie, called the friend's house, spoke with Siobhan, tells her she needs to come home soon. The two little girls walked from the friend's house and headed in the direction of Siobhan's home. Right. When the two reached about the halfway mark, this is right near Whittier School, three blocks from Siobhan's home, the two parted ways. What kind of school is it? Elementary, middle school, high school? I have no idea. Right. <laughs> uh, it, the papers just said Whittier School. Again, this is only about three blocks from Siobhan's home. The two part ways, her friend turned around and is going to head back to her house, and Siobhan presumably continued on her way. However, she never made it to her home. Yeah. Siobhan's mother reported her missing at 8.45 p.m. Now, the search intensified after a report of an attempted assault on another five-year-old in the neighborhood earlier that day. According to police reports, a man with curly red hair talked this other girl into a shack or a shed on the north side of Missoula and tried to molest her. The girl, according to the papers, escaped unharmed. The February 7th newspaper featured a sketch of the man sought in the molestation attempt. Police did say that there was no official link between the two crimes. Do we know if it's an older man or a younger man? Judging by the sketch, it appears to be a younger man. Right. Another lead was a report that came in from another local school. This is from the Paxton school officials that said a man was seen near their school asking children to get into his car so that he could take pictures of them. Yeah, that's a, that's an innocent hobby, isn't it? Yeah. The description of this man did not match that of the description of the man saw in the molestation. What's wrong with people? You know what I mean? What's wrong with people? Well, and then you got to go a step further and you go, okay, what is scarier here? Do we have one guy going around to multiple schools looking for a potential victim? Or do we have three individuals who are all deviants into different weird stuff? Right. Unfortunately, Captain Siobhan's body was found in a culvert by a county road worker at the Tura. I believe it's pronounced Tura. T-U-R-A-H exit from Interstate 90. She was found at approximately 3.45 p.m. on Thursday, February 7th. The body was reported to be bloodied, and there was a blood trail found beneath a new layer of snow. So it's early February. It's cold out. It's Montana, which gets even colder than here. They were experiencing snowfall within several, you know, a period of several days. Uh-huh. And however this blood got there, it had 
it got there and it was on top of some snow, but then there was an additional layer of snow that had fallen on top of this blood trail. There's some weird things going on here though, captain, there were no human footprints found in the area, but there were several dog prints found in the area. And mind you, they find this trail of blood that leads down from the road out to this culvert where she is eventually discovered underneath that layer of the new layer of snow. Right. But a dog didn't transfer her out there. Well, you just, you just totally poked holes in my, my theory. I I was going to say, I've not found anything to confirm my suspicions, but I think it's possible. She was dumped right at the side of the road and then dragged the dogs, dragged the body to where she was eventually found. Okay. Look, is it possible, but why don't we have some drag marks on the body? drag marks uh in the area we could we could it's i just find it weird that we find dog tracks but no human prints Mm. well but also that might give you a clue of when the body was left because if the if it was dry or cold we wouldn't have any footprints of a human she was found frozen and fully clothed Now, witnesses reported seeing two distinct vehicles in the area of the dump site, maybe even roughly the time that it's believed that she could have been dumped. One of the reports states that the police were looking for a 1959 or 1960 Ford Fairlane with Montana license plates. The other, and this seems to be more, they were more focused on this other vehicle, and you'll see why here in just a second. A heavy focus on this vehicle. This was either a 1958 to 1960. So 1958, 59, or 1960 green Cadillac with New York plates. Now that's very interesting because this car sounds even more distinctive than the other. And plus we have the out of state plates. Right. So it might have been noticed by other people in the area at the time or even the town over. Well, not a close neighboring state. Right. And yeah, because you have New York and then you have parts unknown and then Montana. Right. But if parts unknown is huge. Right. If you're in Ohio and there's Ohio and you see like an Indiana license plate, not that big of a deal. Or if you see Kentucky or if you can see, see Michigan, it's not that big of a deal. But you see a New York license plate, you go, oh, that, it, it always sticks out a little bit more. Look there, Captain. I see, you see that? There's a New York City plate. <laughs> All right. So this is interesting, though, too, because along with this description of the car, mm-hmm. we get a description of the driver of this car. He looks like a guy from New York City. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the descri- the driver is described as a middle-aged white man wearing dark clothing and a baseball cap. The left rear fender skirt on the vehicle was missing. So even more descriptiveness, if that's a word. Right. Later on, the autopsy revealed that the little girl died from multiple stab wounds and she had been sexually assaulted. Now, regardless whether or not the two unsolved murders were connected, and I know we've covered several murders by this point, but I'm talking about Donna Pounds and Siobhan McGinnis, the little girl. Well, the reason why I wouldn't discount it is the idea that I think in the Pounds case, it almost seems like the perpetrator had this 
idea or had this um, plan and then it got switched around once he found the gun of the homeowner. Mm -hmm. Meaning like, so just because they were just because the murders happened by two different uh, inflictions or injuries, Mm -hmm. I want to separate the two necessarily. Correct. Maybe he showed up with the knife that he used on Siobhan McGinnis. And decided that's not Finds a gun or threatens the homeowner. Uh, You got any weapons? And she she reveals where the the weapon may be Mm -hmm. and then decides to use, oh, I'll use the gun because there's no connection to me. Right. And I'll just leave it here because if I don't take it with me, again, no connection to me. Yeah, but I'd also think on some level it would just be easier like that you have to have some kind of more of a raw emotion, more possibly a hatred for the individual. Like they said, when there's a stabbing victim, it's normally uh, a crime of passion. Well, maybe these are just sexually motivated crimes. Then you have to murder the person to cover it up, but the murder is just to cover it up. Mm -hmm. It's not part of the sexual fantasy right and there in lies some more difficulty to me when i when i look at both of these crimes where you go okay well why is murder necessary to cover up these crimes that usually points to the victim could identify the perpetrator not just in description but maybe even knows them by name right and a little girl her circle is much smaller socially than than an adult than a, a woman who's in her late 30s, early 40s. But generally, an adult will have a much larger social circle than a four or five or six-year-old child. Right, but what I'm saying is that I think this perpetrator is... I, I think this murderer knows his victims without the victims knowing him as well as he knows them. Regardless whether or not the two unsolved murders were actually connected... They were now linked in the minds of the public, and this will be for a couple of reasons. One, the satanic panic letter rumor that was going around. Got to kill a virgin, got to kill a follower, got to kill a betrayer. That means that this person has achieved steps one and two and now is looking for their third victim. The second reason, the murder rate is very, very low in this area of the country. Montana has a very low murder rate, especially at this time, at the mid-70s. They would usually have one or two murders a year, sometimes none. But when they had murders, they were solved. They were solved easily. It all too often was the usual suspects. The husband or the boyfriend did it. Or someone the victim had been feuding with committed the homicide. So these are linked in the minds of the public simply because they don't get that many murders and both of these ones are sitting there unsolved at the time. Two murders with extreme differences in victimology, in my opinion, but still must be connected because they occurred within two months and a few days of each other and they are both unsolved. Back to the Donna Pounds case. We still have some suspects. And there was rumor surrounding our victim's husband, Harvey Pounds. Local rumor was that he was having an affair leading up to the murder of his wife. 
Detectives investigated this angle quite thoroughly as the local rumored was detailed enough that it often named the woman that Harvey was thought to be having this affair with. Police spoke to this woman on several occasions, and after investigating, they were having a hard time believing that the affair rumor was even true. But one thing they didn't like was Harvey. Harvey was not only fully cooperating with the investigation. This is one of those weird stories, Captain, where we hear all the time, oh, this guy quit talking to police. The boyfriend or the husband was not cooperating with police. This is one of those weird times where they go, he's fully cooperating and we don't feel good about it. They say that he was a little too cooperative. He was constantly out in his yard and walking the neighborhood looking for clues and then calling the sheriff's department, reporting every irrelevant small find that he came across. They thought it was like he was trying to steer the investigation. Yeah. Like he he's bringing up something. He found a block over. I found this rock on the side of the road and they're going, Oh, you're just, you're just throwing us off the scent. Right. That's what their thoughts are. Can you imagine this guy? Let's say he's innocent, right? Let's say he's the victim here. His wife has just been killed and he's been told by police, oh, we're investigating this lead that somebody was seen in your backyard. Right. We're investigating this lead so much so to the point where we're begging the public for their help that we found the surgical glove. Could you all go out in your yards and look for the second one? Mm. It seems to me like he's kind of doing what the police are asking the public to do. He's out walking the neighborhood in his yard looking for that other surgical glove or looking for, uh, right? They're (laughs) like, go out and look for this stuff, and he's looking for it, and they're like, man. Right, but Mr. Harvey Pounds, don't you dare go out and look for this stuff. You seem a little suspicious when you do it. They thought that it was like he was trying to steer the investigation. Maybe he's trying to direct the narrative of the evidence. Right, but we don't know the. Tied to the evidence. We don't know the demeanor of this individual either because, like, you know, going back to the original when the investigators show up and you have to talk to the husband, that knowing what we know, knowing that the percentage is, is most likely that the spouse is involved in the murder of another spouse. So when you show up, you don't want to just uh, assume that. You don't want to say that they're guilty before you have any proof of that but you're going to be looking at them with suspicious eyes anyways. Well, and that was the issue within the sheriff's department itself. You kind of had a split down the middle of opinions with the officers and the investigators. You had half the room that seemed to know Harvey pounds pretty well, and they understood how religious this man was. And they're going, he could have never have killed his wife because that's not in his nature. That's not who Harvey is. He's not a violent individual. He's very involved in his church. And then you have the other half of the room going, maybe these rumors are true. And he certainly looks like a good suspect. He's the husband. His gun was used to kill this woman. So you really had a split down the middle within the sheriff's department. These people arguing, these officers arguing amongst each other as to what the direction of the investigation should be. Right. One thing that Harvey reported that the sheriff's department did not like at all was a bullet that he found inside his home. 
He said that he found a bullet lodged inside of a book that was in one of the rooms on a bookshelf in the upstairs. The problem that the sheriff's department had with this bullet that Harvey Pounds found was they couldn't believe that they didn't find it. Right. This could have simply have been one of the shots that was fired upstairs and they didn't find this bullet for whatever reason. Now, the way that this was found, the way that I understand it to be anyway, Captain, was that the book was positioned as such on the shelf that the, not the uh, binding or whatever you, the spine mm-hmm. wasn't out. It was the pages. The pages side was out. Mm. So when this bullet was fired from wherever in the room, it got lodged in some of the pages of the book. Right. But there was another rumor that was going around at the time, and this had nothing to do with Harvey Pounds. And this was something that started off sounding like a rumor, but could actually be really true. The rumor was that this odd kid in school his name, Wayne Nance. He's the same one that's already been questioned by police, the kid that skipped school because he wasn't feeling well on the same day that Donna Pounds was murdered. Right. The rumor going around school was that Nance had told a few other students that he was going to kill someone before he turned 19 years of age. See, again, again, they're all connected. They're all little pieces of, of the same puzzle. This reminds me of Damien Eccles. Right. Right. When reviewing this case, that's one thing that kept popping up. And you already mentioned BTK. And you'll see some some things that will remind you of the Golden State Killer as well. This is really a very fascinating case. And these rumors that are going around at the school, Nance says, to a couple people, hey, I'm going to kill somebody before I turn 19. He's 18 at this time. He's running out of time if that's what he's really going to do. I mean, thinking back on high school and middle school, I don't remember ever hearing somebody say anything like that I thought was like insane. Like this. <laughs> right, right. You know? Violently insane. Like, I mean, I heard. Kids say a lot of dumb stuff. Yeah, I heard a lot of dumb shit, but. I told people I was going to be Batman when I grew up. Mm. Still working on that. All the, <laughs> I turned in my job application the other day. Failure. Yeah. Gotham City Mayor denied my application. I'm Batman. If you get a call, by the way, I use you as a phone. <laughs> I use you as a reference. Uh, if oh, you you oh. need to answer the phone, Vandalay Industries for the next few days. So this kid, here's what's weird about this, though, Captain. Mm-hmm. The principal catches wind of this, and it's not because he's you know out in the halls and hears these kids speaking. The kids that that Nance supposedly told this to. They weren't going around school and blabbing this to everybody. No, because once Donna Pounds is found murdered in the neighborhood where Nance lives, these kids aren't blabbing about it because they're afraid of all of a sudden. They're afraid, and they've already heard the rumor of the occult letter or satanic note that was supposedly found in the area of the crime scene. You mean they're just afraid in general, not? afraid of Wayne. No, I think it's twofold. I think they're, they're afraid, afraid in general because okay. there is a killer out there, but they're they're extra afraid because they think they know the killer. They think it Psycho is Nance. Kiss, kiss, fa, 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 fa. One of the kids that was in very good upstanding with the school, with the teachers and the principal, his name was Bill. 
and he knew Nance fairly well. I wouldn't call them friends, but he goes to the principal and he says, look, this is what Wayne Nance was telling people before Donna Pounds was killed, that he was going to kill someone before he turned 19. Wayne is weird. We just all thought it was Wayne being Wayne. Now, Donna Pounds is dead, and in a roundabout way, Bill tells the principal, I believe Wayne was trying to tell me that he killed Donna Pounds. How this comes about is Bill says that one day he's hanging out with Wayne at school. Again, I, they're not, they don't seem to be friends. They just know each other from school. Right. They might have to sit beside each other in class. And Wayne said something to Bill like, it has been done. Or it is done. And mind you, Bill has this Donna Pounds murder on his mind. So he thinks that that's what Wayne is referencing. And Wayne tells him, no, I'm. He, he's talking about something else. Right. Bill doesn't believe him. Bill is afraid enough that he goes to the principal to tell him this, begging that the principal does not, you know, don't tell anybody other than the police. The principal's in this weird spot because he's going, all right, you know, kids will be kids. He's, he's probably got several years under his belt. He knows how kids behave, how teenagers behave. And he's going, is this something that I go to the police with? Or is this just something weird that this kid is telling me again? You go to the police and let them decide. Our victim is in her early forties. The person that is rumored to be a suspect is Wayne Nance. Who's a senior in high school. Hmm. The principal does mention this to the the sheriff. He calls the head honcho at the sheriff's department, discusses what is going on there. Now, the principal is unaware at this time that the sheriff's department actually spoke to Wayne Nance early in their investigation. Now what you have, remember we have the split room at the sheriff's department where half of them believe that Harvey Pounds killed his wife and the other half didn't? Well, now the half that did not believe that Harvey Pounds killed his wife they think Wayne Nance killed Donna Pounds. What you have here is you have arguments going on within the department of people saying, get me a search warrant. Let me put the pressure on Harvey Pounds and I'll get a confession or I'll get the evidence you need to convict Harvey Pounds. You have the other half of the room saying, we need to look into this Wayne Nance kid. This could be some serious stuff here. What they do is they bring both of them in for a polygraph test. Wayne Nance passes the polygraph with flying colors. According to his answers, he had nothing to do nor knows nothing about the murder of Donna Pounds. The results of Harvey Pounds' test are inconclusive. And thank everybody for joining us here in the garage. A lot of people have been talking about the Netflix documentary American Murder about Chris Watts. We covered that case. It's titled Christopher Watts, episode 269 and 270. And you can find those episodes for free. Just download the Stitcher app. And also check out our bonus show called Off the Record. Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 